Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features Julia Glass at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. National Book Award winner Julia Glass won one of fiction's highest honors with her debut novel. That Breakout, Three Junes in 2012, follows the lives and loves of a Scottish family over the course of a full decade. Upon its release, the New York Times book review gushed, Three Junes brilliantly rescues, then refurbishes their traditional, plot-driven novel. Subsequent bestsellers to Glass's credit include The Whole World Over in 2007, I See You Everywhere in 2008, The Widower's Tale in 2010, and In the Dark Sacred Night in 2014. This last revisits several of the characters and settings from Three Junes. Glass is also a prize-winning short fiction writer and a frequent anthology collaborator. Glass's new full-length novel, A House Among the Trees, centers around the childhood secrets and shocking last will and testament of a world-renowned children's book author. The National Book Review calls it enthralling. Glass is a master at withholding information until just the right moment. Um, First of all, I have to say I'm always happy to visit a library. I almost never say no to library events because I consider that a library was my third parent growing up. Uh, When I was in fourth grade, we moved, um, I I grew up in the Boston area, and we moved to a beautiful town west of Boston that had this gorgeous old Victorian library. And I was a consummate bookworm. And I heard that starting in fifth grade, you could work at that library um, as a page. Uh, Nowadays, that's called uh, child slave labor or something (laughs) like that. It's not legal anymore, but back then they were very canny and they could pay you, I don't know, five cents an hour to go. So I was so excited and I thought that there would be a line around the block for these jobs and the first day after fifth grade, I made my mother drive me to that library. Well, of course, (laughs) one of very few suckers to, to start that. But I worked at that library a couple of afternoons, weekday afternoons a week and Saturdays, and every summer but one all the way through the summer before my senior year in college. Um, So that library was so much a part of my growing up and and all the women, I have to say there were no men librarians and all the women who worked in that library, some were volunteers and some were hired librarians, were all like my literary moms. Um, my mother was a good mother, but she's a very outdoorsy, athletic person, so she was happy that there were other people with whom I could talk books. But I have to tell you that the last time that I came to do a book event in this area, I did a very big multi-author benefit for St. Paul, I think it must be the main library, huge library in the city. 
And I told more stories about working at this library. And one of the stories I told was about how the funniest and most awkward job that I was given when I was working there in middle school, sort of later in middle school, probably eighth grade, is that in the basement of this library were all the sort of old, sad, unwanted books that, like, you know, copy four of The Once and Future King or something. Books that nobody could bear to throw away, but were kind of being warehoused there. And there was this one huge books, bookcase with a space behind it that was just wide enough so that people could sneak in there and make out. And <laughs> so when the librarians discovered this, I guess it was too big a feat of engineering to move that bookcase back. So instead, whoever was working weekday afternoons, you would take turns being on what we call makeout patrol, <laughs> which means that you had to go down and chances are you were gonna see the cutest boy in your grade making out with the most popular girl. And of course, that would do nothing for your own reputation at school because you were you know, basically just a, you know, a, um, a tattletale or whatever. Um, and then you had to sort of ask them to please come out. And, and that was sort of, the, but, what, but the other person, the other page in the library who was a little older than me that also had to go through this humiliating job was a guy named Arlo Frost. And I do not know why I just said his name at St. Paul at this huge event, but all sorts of people like made some noise of kind of recognition or laughter. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, well, I can't imagine how many Arlo Frost there are, but our veterinarian here in the St. Paul area is Arlo Frost. <laughs> and I thought, what? So they went and they asked him, and lo and behold, I get this email from Arlo Frost in St. Paul saying, oh my god, I remember Makeout Patrol. <laughs> you know, it's like you think you made up the story, but no, I didn't make up. So in case any of you have Dr. Frost, taking care of your cat or dog, please tell him I told the story again. <laughs> anyway, so I am here to talk about uh, my latest book, A House Among the Trees. And um, as Amelia said, it is, this is a book about what happens after a world-renowned, beloved, iconic children's book author dies quite suddenly in his 70s, leaving behind a will that is not what anyone expected. And the three characters through whom you get this story, who are the three people left to deal with the difficulties and the secrets behind this legacy, are first and foremost the longtime live-in assistant of the writer, and the writer's named Mort Lear, and his assistant for decades was this woman named uh, Tommy Dowlair. And at the time that he dies, she's in her 50s. They are not romantically involved, in fact, Mortlier was gay and did have one very tempestuous decade-long affair. But for the most part, he was solitary. And Tommy lived with him and thought that she knew everything about him. Um, the other two characters who must deal with this are the spurned museum curator, Meredith Galarza, who believed and had every reason to believe that her museum would inherit, once Mortlier died, all of his collections his manuscripts, and so forth. And he leaves not one scrap of paper to them. So, and her career kind of hinges on that bequest. Um, so her, so she's in this story trying to win back at least part of that promised uh, bequest. And then the third character is a budding movie star named Nicholas Green, who has after working very hard in the industry in his early 30s, has just been canonized with every award there is, the BAFTA, the Oscar for 
a, for a film role that he had, and he has been cast to play Mort Lear in a biopic of the writer when he was young. And <coughs> so he had arranged to come and meet Mort Lear in his house in Connecticut, which is the house among the trees, before he died. And the novel begins on the day, it's 10 days after Mort Lear has died, when the actor still is coming to the house to um, meet, instead of meeting Mort Lear, to meet uh, Tommy Dallaire, who does not want to meet this actor. She's very introverted. She doesn't like the fact that Mort Lear agreed to cooperate with this film. She wonders what secrets it will reveal, things she knows that other people don't know. But what she doesn't know is that Nicholas Green also was the recipient of a secret of Mort Lear's that nobody else knows. So in a way, one of the things that this book is about is how do we deal with the, the carrying forward, the reputation, the, the life story of people, of famous people, when you are inside that creative circle and it's your responsibility to carry forth that legacy. And I'm going to talk about how this book came to be because it came to me in a different way from my previous five books. I have always envied writers who say that they can get ideas for novels from you know, the human interest stories in People magazine or obituaries in the New York Times. I remember reading this amazing obituary of the guy who invented kitty litter, which he actually invented originally as a substance to put on the decks of aircraft carriers during World War II to keep semen from slipping. And then after the war, it's like, gee, what can I do with this stuff I invented? Oh, I know, cats can pee in it. I mean, I don't know. But you read these stories. But somehow, all my books come out of some cranny inside me, and they originate with a character who comes to me. And that character is in some kind of crisis or moment of opportunity. And it could be, you know, something is changing from outside, something is changing from inside. But normally, my inspirations don't come from the world out there. I've always been a daydreamer. My mother used to tell me all the time, you are daydreaming again, you are daydreaming again, and I am still daydreaming. I'm also, as a writer, a serial monogamist. I work on one book at a time. I hate those writers who have so many books in their head, they're just stacked up like planes at the airport. You know, I remember doing an event with the, the writer who I like very much, Daphne Calote, and we were talking and someone asked in the audience, what do you do when you get stuck? She said, oh, I work on the other novel. I thought, what do you mean the other novel? You know, it's like, oh, I just sleep with the other man, you know? Because to me, this is really an act of faith and fidelity. So I guess it would be now probably four years ago, I was working along on what I thought was going to be my sixth novel, and I found myself procrastinating constantly. And I procrastinate, you know, like most writers do. I, I, I am not one of those get up before the birds sing and don't even have coffee and write 10 pages and then the children get up. No, I'm not that person. Those people are like Joyce Carol Oates and company. They, they will leave shelves and shelves of books behind, but, but not me. So <clears throat> I was really, I was having such a hard time that I would find myself going online deep into the New York Times and reading all sorts of fashion stories, things I'm not even interested in. Um, so. At about that same time, I read an article in the New York Times 
probably while I was procrastinating, but this was actually an article of great interest to me. And it was about the last will and testament of the writer Maurice Sendak. And he had been dead maybe for a year or six months. And so the piece was not an obituary, but it was about how everybody thought they knew what he was going to do with his obviously priceless um, accrual of manuscripts and artwork and so forth. There was a museum in Philadelphia that even had some of it on loan at the time, but he left nothing to them. And I won't go into what he was going to do, what he did with his work instead, which is another story, because to me the interesting part of this newspaper story was not the part about him and his wishes, but the part about this assistant he had who had lived with him. Now, she had started working for him when she was 19 as his dog walker, apparently. And, and then she just began to do more and more for him. And Maurice Sendak had a long time relationship with another man, a man who lived with him for, for I think, decades. And this young woman moved in with them. And she took care of many things to do with his everyday life, just making his life much easier. And when he died, he left her in charge of everything, in charge of his literary estate. And the article went, she was not interviewed for it and there was no picture of her, but the article went into how much scorn and public opinion weighed down on her. You know, who was she to be the arbiter of what to do with this great man's work? And I found myself thinking, what would it be like to be, other than a spouse or a lover, to be the closest person to a genius? To be that person who woke up every day, ate meals with that person, helped arrange that person's travel, helped keep that person's life on track, you know, and in this case would take care of Facebook and the website and, and email and all those modern things that, that all of us have to be concerned with, but that if you're lucky enough to have the money and the means, somebody else can take care of for you. And what is, what is that relationship like? Um, and so I began to think not, I mean, I did not want to write a biographical novel about Maurice Sendak. In fact, I don't like to do anything that requires an enormous amount of research. I like to do a little research and I like to do it as late as possible. Um, and I really wanted to write, and I didn't want to know anything more about the woman, the real person who was Maurice Sendak's assistant. So I, I didn't do any delving there. And I began to think about this in sort of in a guilty way, because here I was not working on the book I was supposed to be working on. And at the same time, <clears throat> my oldest son was home from college for Christmas vacation, and he is a passionate actor. He's been acting since sixth or seventh grade, and I mean, I've had the privilege of seeing him in nine Shakespeare plays alone. So, you know, he's just never not acting. And when he, comes when he comes home, what he loves to do is go to the movies and really study actors' performances. And, and also, I've had some really interesting conversations with him about how you tell a story, because movies tell stories very differently from books. And we've had a lot of arguments. He's the child who's the most like me, so we argue a lot, because we're not opinionated at all. Um, so that Christmas vacation of his, we must have gone to see every movie that was going to be up for contention at the Oscars, because he wants to see all the movies of quality, the really, the art house movies, and you know, with the, and the Hollywood movies that are very well reviewed and so on. In fact, we just went to see 
a star is born together the other morning. We went to the 11.45 showing and it was like all these ladies and us, you know, and the, me and this guy with a beard. So um, anyway, uh, so we were, he focuses on the male actors' performances. And so after he went back to college, there I was, me and the book again, <laughs> you know, no excuses. But I found myself going online and going to YouTube, and I'm not much of a YouTuber, or I didn't used to be, and Googling interviews with some of these actors who had been in these movies that we saw. And I fell down some rabbit hole into a round table conversation. I think it was a British talk show thing where there were, I'm gonna say seven, and you may count and I'll be wrong, but seven of the male actors who were, who were all expected to be up for the big awards were at this round table interview. And they included, and you'll, maybe recognize this movie season when I tell you these actors, Alan Turing, I mean not Alan Turing, what did I say, Benedict Cumberbatch, who played Alan Turing um, in that movie whose name I never remember, The Something Game, uh, Eddie Redmayne, who played S Stephen Hawking, uh, Tim Timothy Spall, who was in a movie about the painter Turner, Channing Tatum and Steve Carell, who were in that very strange movie Foxcatcher, about the DuPont who becomes obsessed with the wrestler and commits a murder. And Bradley Cooper, who was in American Sniper. And, and Michael Keaton, who was in Birdman. Uh, and by the way, my son and I had such a serious argument about who was better, Michael Keaton in Birdman or Eddie Redmayne in the theory of everything that we had to be separated physically by my husband. Um, I was glad to find out when Oscar season came around that I was right and it was Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> but at this round table conversation, what struck me is that all of these actors, except for one, except for Michael Keaton, were playing real people, people, in, and in a couple of cases, people who were still alive. And so they were talking about the responsibility and the privilege of playing a real person. And, uh, and I thought, wow. And suddenly I thought, I realized how many movies and this is still true, our biopics these days. And Bradley Cooper, who was playing Chris Kyle in American Sniper, had spoken on the phone to Chris Kyle. And he said that although their politics were different, they really connected and he made an arrangement to fly to Texas and spend time with Chris Kyle, who he was going to be playing. And between the time they made that arrangement and the intended date, um, Kyle was assassinated on the shooting range by one of the veterans he was trying to help. So for Bradley Cooper, it was this unfulfilled thing that he had expected and he had to go forward. And of course, in that case, the script had to be rewritten. So I suddenly thought, what if I wrote about this famous children's book author who is but is not Maurice Sendak, who, about whom a biopic is being made, and there's this actor who's corresponded with him, and he has this assistant, and suddenly I had this trio of characters, and then I thought about the museum curator, and I just, you know, the first line of the book is, today the actor arrives, and I just had that line, and I started writing this and I would think about it in the shower and then go to work on the other book. And then I had a little file on the side. And I go, I'll just go add some ideas. And suddenly I was completely cheating on the book I was supposed to be writing, which I've been in serious marriage counseling with, by the way. So I'm working on that. I'm restructuring that book now. But I really have never 
just taken off on a book the way I did with this. Of course, I, you know, you get to the middle and then things are, it's like being in a little life raft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And you don't know if you have enough supplies and you can't see the horizon. So it was the same experience I have with all my books, but, um, but it was this, but starting it felt like I just had to write this book. And like all my books, I don't, I don't plot books. I don't, I just write forward kind of into the dark. And so sometimes I end up writing about things that not only did I not expect to be writing about them, but I never would have dared to write about them. And uh, one of the things that I found myself writing about, it's kind of in a mirror-like fashion, is the, the burden of success. Now, you know, you roll, we all roll our eyes at like, oh, how hard to be a movie star, right? Um, but I realized that I was writing about success from two ends of the spectrum. Because inevitably, you get to know Mort Lear very, very well through the flashbacks that you see of him through the three people, the, other, the three main characters here. And the man you get to know certainly is charming and intelligent and talented, but he's someone who, has, who had an early success with a book, not his first book, but a picture book called Colorquake, of which you get almost the entirety of text in, inside this book, because it's just a picture book. Um, and which is, again, inspired by, but not like, where the wild things are. He, huge success. And not only that, but his success changed the stature of children's literature, just as Maurice Sendax did. But to sustain that level of success across a number of decades, is obviously a hard thing. And as you see younger writers come up alongside you, surpass you, win the big awards, it's hard not to suffer from spite and jealousy and insecurity. And that's one of the things that Tommy Dallaire witnesses up close. And on the other end of the spectrum, here is Nicholas Green, who has worked very hard as an actor for a decade, and all of a sudden, he is a movie star. All of a sudden, he's, you know, as I say here, he's Sexiest Man Alive, number seven in People magazine. He's on the, you know, CVS newsstands on all the magazines. And just for fun, I made him British because I also had begun to notice how many British actors are playing American characters. Like, how in the world did, what's his name, Tom Hiddleston end up playing Hank Williams? Like, didn't they have any American actors who could play Hank Williams? So I thought it would be fun to have it be a British actor. And as those of you who've read Three Junes and some of my other books know, I really love writing British characters. I love delving into the similarity and differences of the language. And so I, I had a, a very good time. I also thought that my son, it might be an occasion for me to sort of bond with my son and talk about acting. He said, oh, mom, I have no idea how I do it. It's all completely inside. And it's like, okay, thanks a lot, honey. So I did rob some books about acting out of his bedroom but, um, and learn from those. So um, I actually thought that I would read a couple of short scenes for you. And um, let's see. I'm going to read a scene. So I'm going to read a scene uh, from Tommy Dallaire's point of view. Now, at the very beginning of the book, she is waiting for the actor to arrive, and he comes, and he absolutely charms her. And against her own nature, she agrees to let him come back and stay in the house for a weekend so he can just be in the place that Mort Lear lived and worked and sort of absorb the vibe. So this is uh, Tommy Dallaire waiting for the second time for the actor to arrive.
For the second time, and no less anxiously than the first, Tommy waits for the actor to arrive. The house feels both too large and too small and too dark. Its comforts have begun to chafe, a rough knit sweater worn against skin. The trees block the circulating air as much as they shade the roof. The heat and humidity are abruptly oppressive, August in early June. The picket fence at the front of the property has broken out in verdant acne, a mossy flocking that even bleach will not remove. Tommy called the painter they've used in the past, but his number is obsolete. If Morty were still around, he might joke that it's an omen. Did she depend on Morty for humor? Is she wilting for want of laughter? Once, she would have moved her laptop to the screened porch, found minor relief in its deep, breezy shade. But she avoids the porch now because it looks directly onto the slate terrace where Morty fell to his death, where she waited with his body for help. She hasn't even bothered to dust the pollen from the tables and chairs, never mind put out the cushions. After too much vacillation, she made up the sofa bed in the den. Ordinarily, she would give him the guest room on the attic level, a slant-ceilinged loft with old quilts and hooked rugs and the only air conditioner in the house, but ordinarily does not apply. Tommy dislikes the idea of the actor sleeping above her. Why? It makes no sense. So little does. I am going a little mad, she thinks. What would the actor say? A wee bit daft? A tad round the bend? His voice has seeped its way into her consciousness from which it wafts up like the teasing scent of an expensive perfume. She is dogged in particular by the courteous lilt of his request. May I possibly trouble you to show me the drawings of Evo? Evo is the character in Color Quake. To which she had had to reply that no, alas, they were temporarily on loan to a museum in the city. She shouldn't be preoccupied with Nicholas Green. He's just a convenient, even ludicrous distraction. But she rationalizes that once his visit is past, she can bear down on the too many tasks she's avoiding, that temporary loan to name just one. She has yet, she has yet to summon the nerve to begin the ordeal of getting those drawings back. For the past two nights, she's awakened in what Morty called the Netherland of Night, sweaty despite her window fan, startled by dreams involving actors whose movies she doesn't even know all that well. During intermission, at a play in New York, she searches for the restroom. She goes up one staircase, but no, she hurries back down and enters a dim hallway. It leads her to a door that opens onto a stone terrace in broad daylight. Waiting for her there is Woody Harrelson, he wants to show her a beautiful tattoo on his forearm. It looks like a pirate map, a guide to finding buried treasure. Woody asks her, tenderly, if she has any children. She wonders if he is going to ask her to have children with him. In the dream, she's not too old to consider it. Last night, it was Ben Stiller. Not at all the comic, bug-eyed Ben Stiller, but a sorrowful version, haunted, soft-spoken. He was in the kitchen while she was making dinner for Morty. He told Tommy that she didn't need to give him any food, but he needed her to help him learn his lines. He was playing Hamlet. 
Maybe he wasn't up for it after all. She woke with a fiercely protective feeling toward Ben, as if his career depended on Tommy. She got out of bed and went to the bathroom, drank a glass of water, and stared for a few minutes out the window just to stitch herself back into the real world. The outer night was still, trees motionless around the stern silhouette of Morty's studio. Yet when she returned to sleep, she was once again in the kitchen and Morty was sitting down to dinner. She asked him if he had seen Ben Stiller on his way in. He told her that wasn't possible. Hadn't she read in the paper that Stiller was undergoing pancreatic surgery? In fact, he might have already died. They must check the obituaries the following day. Again she awoke, and she had to fight the compulsion to go downstairs, turn on her computer, and search for breaking news about Ben Stiller. In the heavy air of a morning that foretells a blazing afternoon, these absurdist dreams hover like the musk of an animal that passed the house before dawn. Lethargy, she thinks. Whatever you do, do not let me turn lethargic, Morty told her after his lover Soren died. Morning is like quicksand. Well, now she knows. So, um, when the actor comes for that weekend is when she finds out what he knows that nobody really knew. Morty is someone who had a childhood trauma that involved abuse and he had been somewhat open about it in an interview that you read in the beginning of this book. Um, but he didn't tell the whole truth about it. And in fact, it's a different kind of trauma than what he had led, without lying, had led most people to believe. And it is Nicholas Green to whom he confided in a long correspondence. Because Nicholas Green is playing him in a movie that's about the first half of his life. Not playing him as a child, but there is an actor playing him as a child who you meet very briefly. But, um, you know, sometimes life reflects what I'm working on in ways that I could never have expected. And I was six months into working on this book when my father died. And he had been ill for a while. Uh, he was 84. Um, but after he died, some things emerged about him, it, some secrets that my mother didn't know. And my parents had been married for almost 60 years. Now, it's not as if I had another a set of siblings somewhere. I know people who have made those kind of discoveries after a father died. It was nothing like that, but there were some things concealed in his desk. There were some decisions he'd made, financial decisions that he hadn't shared with my mother. And I saw my mother go through incredible hurt and anger. And my parents were really, really close. I mean, I think of them as having had a very symbiotic marriage. And I thought, wow, you know, because sometimes I wonder, secrets always emerge in my books. And you think, is it really possible to live this close to someone, to know someone this well, and not to know everything? And of course it is. And then the thing is, what if that person is a public figure? What do you do with those secrets? So this, you know, it was very, it didn't change anything in this book. But to go through that with my mother felt very eerie to me as I was writing this book. Um, so um, let me just sort of make sure I'm not overstaying my welcome here. But um, I think I'll read another scene uh, from Nick's point of view. Another thing that happens to me when I'm writing books because I'm just sort of writing forward in the dark is sometimes characters that I invent basically as set dressing. 
you know, somebody's boss, somebody's dog, somebody, you know, they, they kind of win me over and become more important than I intended them to be. And one of these characters, one of those characters in this book is an older actress named Deirdre Drake. And I wanted Nicholas Green to have a kind of mentor. But, um, and so I invented Deirdre Drake as the woman who plays his mother in this movie, Taramina, that is the movie that wins him all these awards. And you learn a fair amount about that movie. Um, and as I was creating her, I, I found her, I wanted her to be a very large personality. And I would say that I saw her as a combination of um, Lindsay Lohan and Patti LuPone. Somebody who has very publicly disgraced herself, been through divorces, fallen on and off the wagon, you can't fall on the wagon, fallen off the wagon, gotten on the wagon, you know, been through rehab a few times, has a very large life, but somehow keeps coming back. And, uh, and she becomes a very important, almost maternal person to Nick. And so I'm gonna read the scene that he, of his meeting her in person for the first time on the set of this movie, Taramina. Taramina, by the way, is a town in a, a very beautiful, uh, touristy city on the island of Sicily in Italy. Nick sees his career thus far as a steady progress, marked by only a few truly galvanic moments, bone-jarring cracks of thunder, strokes of fate. Following Emmalina Godin to that, theater, to that theater at age 12 was one, his arrival at boarding school was another, the most recent had to be the moment two summers ago when he came down from his room to the lobby at the San Domenico Palace in Taormina, addled by travel delays, a missed flight connection in Milan, unsettled by bad airport food, whatever possessed him to buy prawns, and missing his girlfriend Kendra to collide, almost literally, with his co-star Deirdre Drake. Well met, cowboy, she said in her prairie-wide American contralto. I'm so happy, so honored, so gobsmacked, he heard himself gushing. They had met once for a screen test in LA to see how Nick partnered visually, emotionally, with the woman around whom the film would evolve, would revolve. They had made no small talk, and a literally gut-wrenching brew of superstition and terror had left him both tongue-tied and nauseated beyond the boundaries of the audition itself. In the hotel lobby, she took him by the arm and, leaning so close to him that he could feel her breath on his ear, said, if I'm going to be your mother, boyo, we've got our work cut out, don't we? She then set off in a resolute direction, compelling him along. We're having dinner, yes? Let's skip the bar, though I hear it's in some chapel straight from Il Gattapardo. If I cannot drink, and alas, I cannot, I'll take pasta, pronto. Pasta with some of that lobster imported to these waters as part of the Marshall Plan. Did you know that this is the only part of the world where the lobsters are as good as you'd get in Maine? She raised her eyebrows. Nick managed to shake his head. Sicilian food is unique. You get couscous, North African fishes, and the best of the white wines, if you have doctor's permission, are molto fabuloso. As for me, no vino means I get to order dessert. Give me the tiramisu or semifredo, the least pretentious sweet they offer at this pop stand. 
Her soliloquy flowed seamlessly along as she led him among the tables on a stone terrace, its walls enrobed in pink bougainvillea, its vista one of sun-blazed blue water stretching toward, was it Libya or Greece? Nick had looked at maps before leaving home, but in the compass-tilting glare of Deirdre's presence and in her opulently perfumed wake, he hadn't the faintest notion of his place on any map. We are unfashionably early, she said, obvious from the empty tables, all set but still awaiting diners. Or if we prefer, we simply don't give a high hoot what customs everybody else observes. He was 12 all over again, weak-kneed, swollen-hearted, speechless in the grip of a confused veneration. This wasn't the same quietly coiled actress he had met in front of that camera on the opposite side of the world. Thank God the maitre d', who finally caught up with them, pointed out a table set for five. Once in their chairs, Deirdre spread her napkin in her lap, leaned over and said, one thing. No matter what you hear from these other jokers, do not call me Dee Dee. I can't stand it, but the name sticks to me like bazooka to a shoe. Call me by my proper name and you will not be punished. Up went her artfully shaped brows. Crikey, what did she mean by that? Before he had time to wonder further, they were joined by two producers and Sam Schall, the director. Nick said very little, concentrating on the food, the view, and the incredulity of his being here, on the terrace of this ancient monastery tastefully tarted out for the rich, in thrall to a bona fide American movie star, her radiance only burnished by her resilience in the wake of bad behavior. He found himself listening reverently as she talked about another town in Sicily, high on a small steep mountain, the site of an ancient temple to Aphrodite. The priestesses spent their days doing priestessy things, ablutions, devotions, sacrifices, prayers. But at night, they gave shelter to beached sailors from all points around the Mediterranean. And fucked them, of course, but nobly in service to the ideals of the love and beauty goddess. The women who live there today are the most gorgeous women in the world, part Greek, part Moroccan, Spanish, Egyptian, Mesopotamian. You're laughing? Go and see my friends. No, no, don't be pigs and look it up on your phones. She rolled her eyes and then to Nick, she said, you and I should take a little side trip, seriously if these slave drivers give us a day off. Listening, marveling, eating his swordfish, which tasted intensely of orange and an unexpected spice, cinnamon. Drinking his effervescent wine, he understood that he was there, where all aspiring actors longed to arrive. He might have been one of those sailors, having disembarked safely from a rough voyage and climbed that peak to the temple. So here he stood at the threshold. Deirdre might have been the high priestess herself. Nick could easily see her playing Catherine the Great or Cleopatra. In fact, the more he gazed at her, you could tell she was used to being gazed at, comfortable as the object of attention. The more he saw in her a middle-aged Elizabeth Taylor seducing with her insolence as much as her beauty. So, um, as you can imagine, 
I had a lot of fun writing about the life of a newly minted movie star. And uh, as you can imagine, the ways in which celebrities who are recognizable are, the way in which they, the ways in which they deal with the public are very different since the iPhone um, in particular. You know, nobody wants autographs now, everybody wants selfies. And I actually heard the actor Alan Cummings say recently that the first time someone came up to him and asked to have a selfie, he knew that his life had changed. And he very soon made the decision that he would always say yes with the condition that he hold the phone. He said, I will do it, but I, I take the selfie. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. But there's another uh, phenomenon, and that's actors being tracked or celebrities being tracked where they are. Like if you see Cameron Diaz in you know, the laxatives aisle at CVS, not that she probably hasn't assisted to do that, but you, you know, it's suddenly everybody can know. So I had this, well, Nick Green is staying at this house in Connecticut, which is pretty secluded, but he, he goes downtown to do an errand. Instantly, it's sort of out there that he is in this little town in Connecticut. And lo and behold, a couple of you know, peepers show up and there's, you know, there's not a huge scene about this, but it was sort of fun. So, so I enjoyed writing about Nicholas Green in, in that respect, how he's you know, dealing, and also dealing with the threat to his own ego, and also the thought of how will you ever know again that someone really loves you for yourself. Uh, and um, anyway, I just want to tell one little funny story about celebrity in a different light that I would not have imagined it. Um, the day that this book came out, I actually didn't have an event the night that House Among the Trees came out, but a good friend of mine had a cocktail book coming out, and my husband and I went to her book event. And as happens in bookstores, you know, they, they push back the shelves and clear a space for the author and the chairs, and we're sitting there. And when I listen to people read, and I'm in a bookstore, I listen, but my eyes wander, and I look at all the books. My eyesight's pretty bad, so I often, all I see is kind of mosaics of color these days. But, but I look around, and um, one thing I noticed is that next to my friend was this gigantic bookcase filled with adult coloring books. Now, I don't know if this is still a craze, but I began to notice a couple of years ago that in my independent bookstore, all the regular books kept getting pushed farther and farther back in favor of these really elaborate Byzantine coloring books. And I had no idea, you know, who does these coloring books? Nobody I know. And I, I've actually found out from booksellers that it's people in their 20s who, who do, you know, people much younger than I. So great, you know, it's a good hobby in, instead of going to a shooting range or I don't know what else one might do or doing drugs, I suppose. But, um, but it's, I find it very odd. So here's this coloring book section and, and I'm looking at the coloring book section and I'm thinking, huh. And then my husband, who has much better eyesight than I do, goes, are you seeing what I'm seeing? I said, I don't know. He goes, well. So we, after the reading, while my friend is signing books, we went up to the coloring books section. And this is what I had been seeing. So to fish it out of my bag of tricks here. Um, it's a book called Color Me Good, Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> and next to it was Color Me Good, Benedict Cumberbatch, Color Me Good Tom Hiddleston, and Color Me Good Sting. So clearly, it's, and its color is C-O-L-O-U-R. And I thought, oh my god, you know, coloring books? So um, I, first of all, I have not colored this coloring book. And you can't really see, but if I tell you that in all of them, because Eddie's eyes are not colored in, he 
he looks like he's on crystal meth because his eyes are just white and very blind looking. But whoever wrote this, so there, there are various images. Um, so here's one where he's looking perplexed and on the other side there's an iron. And it says, Eddie cannot for the life of him remember if he left the iron plugged in. Why don't you decide by finishing the drawing below? So you to fill in the cord there. And uh, let's see, there's just a couple, share a couple. Oh, this is, I like this one. This is his picture and there's a multiple choice question on the other side. And it says, isn't he lovely? And the choices are yes, yes, and yes. That <laughs> uh, you learn in this, a fun fact, his default karaoke tune is Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf. Um, but, uh, oh, draw yourself looking straight into his eyes. I like that one too. Um, but, and here he is as the Danish girl and so on. But this one, where is it? Oh, here it is, okay. Here is Eddie clutching a bottle very close to his body, and this is what it says. And then there's a, an empty glass, on, a coupe on the other side. And it says, Eddie has heard about the worldwide Prosecco shortage and is being all tight with it. How are you going to persuade him to give you some? So I have shared this coloring book with people at various readings. And I cannot tell you how many people during the Q&A raise their hand and ask me if there is a worldwide Prosecco shortage. <laughs> now, I like Prosecco, I confess. And I think, you know, did, the maker, did Prosecco makers sneak this in there so that people will start hoarding Prosecco? So about six or eight months ago, I'm looking at the New York Times, and on the front page of the New York Times is this story about a huge feud or war that's, er that's erupted between Prosecco makers and the British Dental Association. Because the British Dental Association put out the word that the most dangerous thing, the worst thing you can possibly imbibe in terms of teeth rot is Prosecco. <laughs> Apparently worse than Swedish fish or, I mean, uh, chewing gum, I don't know. But as you can imagine, the makers of Prosecco took enormous umbrage to this. Of course, as you can imagine, what happens is just, you know, you drink the sparkly stuff and you drink too much of it and you don't brush your teeth before you go to bed. And you know, whatever it is, but so there was this huge press war going on in Europe to, for the Prosecco makers defending their honor against the notion that they were a major cause of tooth decay. So I somehow liked tying that into this story about Eddie Redmayne and Prosecco. Maybe this is sort of their revenge against the British Dental Association. But I was left with the regret that I hadn't known about these coloring books sooner so that I could create a, Nick, a Nicholas Green coloring book. So if I, if I ever you know, write a sequel to this and I write about Nicholas Green, I'm going to have to create that coloring book. So then I will also tell you that in my household, my husband was positive that the actor, Nicholas Green, is Eddie Redmayne. He just is Eddie Redmayne. I'm like, no, he's not. No, he's not. Just because he's British. You know, no, it's not Eddie Redmayne. So when I used to let my husband read my books while I was working on them, but then this terrible thing would happen where he'd read a scene and he'd say, so this character, Phil, that's our friend Tom, right? I go, no, it's not our friend Tom. And then I'd go back to working on the book and all I would see was our friend Tom. So I said, that's it, you're cut off. You know, so he gets to read the book when my agent and my editor do, when I've written a very solid draft. So he was reading the draft, the finished draft of this book. 
uh, and he, he was in another room, and all of a sudden I heard him say, no, <laughs> no way. And I go running, and I go, what? Because sometimes he tells me that I make men believe in ways that are not believable, and then I have to check it with some other guy. But um, I said, what? And he says, I'm sorry. Eddie Redmayne would never do this. <laughs> I said, what? So there's a moment in this book when Nicholas Green has to make kind of a moral choice. And I think that most of us would probably make the same choice he does, but my husband's like, no way would Eddie ever do this. I'm like, well, it's not Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> so um, anyway, this became, so for a while there's this saying in our house, whenever there's like some moral dilemma, what would Eddie do? <laughs> so, um, I, I have told my older son, the actor, that if he ever reaches the, you know, this, that stage with the Oscars or whatever, he has to study Eddie Redmayne's acceptance speeches, which certainly are among the best. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Julia Glass and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Julia Glass could elaborate on the themes present in her first book, Three Junes. I wrote that book in a way that I'll never write another book because, you know, I wrote it really in the dark. And, I, and by the way, I mean, although I teach in an MFA program, I did not get a degree in creative writing. I mean, I majored in visual art in college. I was a painter. And in fact, through my 20s, I was in New York as an aspiring painter, but I used my word skills to support myself. I was a proofreader and then a copy editor, and then I was a pet columnist. And all this while, I was mainly a painter, and then, but I was also reading like crazy and realized in my early 30s that what I wanted to be doing was writing fiction, and I just started doing it. So, um, so that's a whole other story. But when I wrote Three Junes, which grew out of a short story that then grew into a novella, um, because it's hard to face that you're actually writing a novel, and I'm watching this with my students now. It's, it's you know, it's really like stepping off a cliff in a way. Um, I so many things emerged in that book that I didn't expect. So the, as you know, the first part is about the father. It's about Fenno MacLeod's father, this Scottish patriarch who's sort of recovering emotionally from the death of his beloved wife. And I really thought that I could write a whole novel just about him, and then he kind of died on page 70, and that really is not a novel. So, um, uh, And I, I never in a million years, when I wrote that first section, or what became that first section, did I ever think that I would end up writing mostly about his gay son in New York, who is um, a bookstore owner. Um, now, I, I referred earlier to how characters grow out of me. And Fenno MacLeod is the character in that book that is the most like me. Well, Fern is me as well, but there's a part of me that's, that, I mean, it's less true of me now, but is very reticent and, and kind of, I don't want to say fearful, but cautious about life. And Fenno is someone who, in a way, is standing back from life and not living it. And he is forced into life by becoming, at first unwittingly and then with a great deal of love, the caretaker for someone who is dying of AIDS. And I did volunteer work in the AIDS community in New York in the late 
1980s when everyone died. And 1996 is the turning point. That's the year that the uh, protease inhibitor cocktail came out and that all of a sudden AIDS wasn't necessarily a death sentence. Um, I mean, it wasn't a magic bullet. It, the drug was not a magic bullet, but the time that I'm writing about in this is the late 80s. And I lived in the West Village in New York City, and you would see men walking down the street covered with lesions who had KS, Kaposi's sarcoma. And I never, also never thought that my experiences or what I knew of, of the AIDS epidemic in New York would come into my book, but it did. And in fact, it, it kind of frightened me when I realized that I was actually gonna take this on, that I was really gonna write about this character, Fenno McLeod, this very reticent man who's, who's living this celibate life in this bookstore, um, being confronted with mortality and confronted with loving someone that he knows he's going to lose. So, you know, loss, there's a lot of loss in that book, and, but, I, but there's also a lot of hope. Uh, and, you know, I finished that book and I was very lucky to, you know, I got an agent I don't want to say easily, but I, I, it was a stroke of luck that I didn't have to look terribly hard to get an agent. But only one publisher wanted to buy it. And, and the editor that I got was an amazing editor. And I worked closely with her. But it wasn't until readers, till this book really went out in the world and readers were reading it and talking to me that I, you know, it's almost like my characters had a prison break. Because they were in my head and nowhere else for so long. Nobody, um, except my husband a little bit, but that's when I cut him off, um, were reading this book. And readers would tell me things like they would say, oh my gosh, um, there are so many mothers in this book. And I remember someone saying that and I'm like, there are? Because I didn't, I really don't, I mean, it, this can sound sort of disingenuous. I mean, by this point, when I, I've been around the world a bit, I mean, not around the world, but I've toured a lot with House Among the Trees and I've heard a lot of what people say about it. So, but people notice things that I didn't notice, and in a way I'm happy not to notice. So you talk, yes, it's about love and life and death and all the important books are. But one thing that I've realized is that something that I will write about again and again, and I think it's what all the greatest fiction is about, is you know, how we endure beyond the kind of heartbreak in our lives that is fundamentally inconsolable. How do we go on when things happen um, whether it's divorce or the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse, you know, how do we keep living life? And I think that for me, and each novel that I start, I don't think, well, how am I going to attack the theme of endurance, you know, mortal endurance yet again? I just get interested in a story, but I think that that might be a, you know, a unifying thread. But, it, but it's out there in, you know, just about every great novel there is. I mean, tragedies, of course, sometimes there, there is no endurance, but um, I, you know, I've made a joke once that nobody who's friends with a fiction writer should ever ask their advice because fiction writers are sadists. We're constantly inflicting trouble and illness and death and war on, on these fictional, poor fictional people that are our victims. But for me, it's you know, what, what is learned by the people around there, what, you know, what is learned, how, how much stronger, how do you become stronger? Uh, and, for, and in this book, you know, Tommy is the central character and she is really the one who has to find a way to live life beyond the, the life she kind of lived with and for this man who was not 
her husband. She never had children. She never found a significant other um, because she was, I don't want to say enthrall because Mort Lear is a complicated character, but he's not an evil character. Um, but the pull, the magnetic pull of that man and, and helping him helping his, make his life easier was something that kept her with him for a very long time. And then suddenly he's gone. This audience member asks if Glass has a favorite book she has written. They're all my children, right? So I, I used to say, and to some extent it's true that my second book, The Whole World Over, is my favorite. Or I should say, like I'm not going to tell you that's my best book, but that I, that I wrote that book in the wake of a first novel that had the success of Three Junes, it is very hard to write a second book when you're out of the gate. You, you win this big prize. And, um, and I, working on that book took longer than any of my other, it is my longest book, but people tell me that it reads fast because there's a lot of dialogue in it. Um, and it is kind of my, I, I, when I was writing it, I said to another writer, this is my marriage book. And she said, oh, you mean it's your infidelity book? And I said, well, I guess that would be true. It's about what tests a marriage. Uh, but you know, it's funny, I'm working on, on this, I'm reworking the novel that I so uh, discourteously abandoned to write House Among the Trees. Uh, and one or more of the characters come from the book that's on that chair called uh, The Widower's Tale. So I have to do something that I don't love doing. I'm rereading The Widower's Tale because I have to get it right. I have to remember the things about this character. And in fact, it's a good thing because I've forgotten certain details. I need to you know, make sure the continuity is right. And as I'm reading The Widower's Tale, I'm like, hey, this is a good book. <laughs> I wrote this book. I like this book. I wrote this. I mean, it's also, I'll read a scene and I'll think, I wrote this scene? And I kind of, you know, I don't really remember. I wonder if, you know, like for athletes who you know, run races, I mean, do you remember running that marathon? Do you remember that? I mean, it's to remember the act of writing. I mean, I can remember struggling through certain scenes, but the best writing is the writing you don't remember writing because you were sort of in a dream state. So right now, The Widower's Tale is kind of my favorite book because I've been diving back into it and I'm enjoying some of my own characters being with them. This question is about what Julia Glass likes to read. So, um, you know, I read... I have to say I read mostly contemporary fiction, and it's so hard to keep up with all the great books. I also get asked to blurb books, to endorse books, and I'm a slow reader. So um, sometimes I get to read a really good book before anybody else does. So I'll tell you something funny, because this is actually a Minnesota author, and uh, his agent, um, who's a friend of mine, not, he's not my agent, but when the book was still in manuscript, a year before it was gonna be published, he said, would you do me a great favor? And, and he doesn't ask me very often. And this is just a phenomenal book. I said, okay, Barney, I'll read this book. Oh my God, I was so blown away by this book. Imagine you can't recommend it to anybody for a year. So now it's been out for a while and it got some great reviews and it's called The Maze at Windermere. And it's, a, it's an ex astonishing historical novel. I also don't read a lot of historical fiction, but it's a historical novel that takes place in Newport, Rhode Island over five different time periods, from the 1690s to the early 2000s. And his name is Gregory, um, Gregory Smith, but he's got a middle name. Gregory Blake Smith, I think is his name. And he lives somewhere in the Minneapolis area, so you should have him for this, because 
and he's also very funny. I did. I actually uh, interviewed him for an event in Newport, Rhode Island, over the summer, and he's a character. So that that was a really good book. Um, but uh, you know, I love Jennifer Egan. I really enjoyed Manhattan Beach. Uh, I love Richard Russo. I love Michael Cunningham. Um, um, I I read so recently. In the past year, I've read, I'll just name a few really good novels that I've read, some of which you'll know about. So An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. If you have not read it, you know, Oprah picked amazing novel. Um, uh, a, a novel that I bet you won't have read, but that was very well reviewed um, by a writer named Steve Yarbrough, who's written more books than I have. It's his latest novel. is called The Unmade World. Amazing book. And boy, is that ever a book about endurance. Uh, and it's set in... Krakow, Poland, and California. It's a contemporary novel. Um, it even has a mystery in the middle of it. It's just a rich book with lots of characters and plots in it. I also read the much-talked-about first novel called Asymmetry by Lisa, Lisa Halliday, which I think that's the author. Is that the author, Jacob? Do you know Asymmetry? Um, which <laughs> I read for the same reason a lot of people read it, which is that it's a Romana clay about her affair with Philip Roth when she was in her 20s and Philip Roth was in his 70s. But it's much more than that. It is so much more than that and it is so amazingly written and it's really short too. So sometimes it's fun to pick up something that you know. I'm about to start a novel that has just been published by Tin House called Bitter Orange that's supposed to be a psychological thriller that I'm very excited about. I don't know if it's a first time author. Um, I was just corresponding with the writer Phil Cly, who whose first book was a collection of stories about the war in Iraq called Redeployment that just blew my mind. And I read it the week it came out and I thought, you know, oh my God, how am I going to let everybody know about this incredible book? <laughs> well, he got all these great reviews and then it won the National Book Award and it won, you know, but he, I've been waiting, waiting for him to have a novel and I was just we're not friends per se, but I wrote an essay about one of his books and I wanted to, of, of his stories and I wanted to check something. And he has two little boys, so he, he said he's finishing the novel, but I loved redeployment. Um, so I read a variety of fiction. I don't read mysteries per se, uh, but somebody's, I, I've been getting interested in Tana French. I'm not, I haven't read her, because I resist, but people keep telling me that she's very literary and, and I know she has a new book out. Um, but uh, so maybe I'll get around to a ton of French. I wish I were a faster reader than I am. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about the injustices faced by Tommy's brother, Danny. That's, that's interesting. So for those of you who haven't read the book, a secondary character who's very important is Tommy Dallaire's uh, younger brother, Danny. And in fact, you find out, and you find this out fairly early on in the book, she actually, Tommy actually met Mort Lear when she was 12 years old, and she was watching her younger brother in a playground in New York City, actually the very playground that I took my children to countless hours. And um, this man was there with a sketch pad drawing, and it became clear to her that he was drawing her brother. And, you know, her parents had warned her about what we now call stranger danger, right? Um, but this was back in the 60s, and... You know, she, but she struck up a conversation with Mort Lear, and he, you know, she acknowledged that he was drawing, and her brother was five, so he wouldn't have noticed. And then a couple of years later, you know, she she's 
walking past a bookstore and she sees this picture book all over the place. And it's her brother, that dr the drawing, the drawings on this book, and that is Colorquake. And Evo is the little boy, just as Max is the little boy in Where the Wild Things Are. It's about a little boy named Evo. And so Danny finds out eventually, because Mortlier tells him, and that, that he was the inspiration. But the fact is, like, real people might inspire a character in my book, or um, let's say you have a love song written about you that becomes a huge, you know, platinum hit. Uh, does that give you any sort of rights to it? No, it, it doesn't. And so one of the things in this book that's dealt with is Tommy confronts Danny, who's carried this chip on his shoulder, about just what is it that he feels he was owed? You know, does he feel that somehow his soul was stolen? Does he feel, you know, how, how is that? Because it's a, it's a tough thing, because Danny knows he isn't literally owed anything, and yet he resents that this easy success, or seemingly easy success, came to this man because of his drawings of, of Danny. I mean, if it hadn't been Danny, would it have been just another child he drew? Uh, my, my husband is a photographer, and he, when we lived in New York, he photographed artwork for museums and galleries, and he's very interested in the lives of the artists. And one of the things you read about, many of the great artists were their muses, whether it was Bonnard or Picasso, the women that they painted again and again and again, and sometimes spat out Picasso sort of I hate to see I would hate to see Picasso in the in the days of the Me Too movement um, uh, so you know that's there is a certain ruthlessness to being an artist and sometimes when I use a story that I have absorbed in the world um, I, I don't feel guilty but uh, I have sometimes inadvertently like someone will read a book of mine who I know and say did you get that from the story I told you about? And I'll say, oh, I guess I did, you know, but I'm not paying up. I mean, if you <laughs> tell me something. Henry James reportedly went to, to cocktail parties. He was a very introverted man, and he, he led a very uptight life, a very unhappy life, I think. But there's actually an amazing historical novel written about him called The Master by Colm Toybean. And, um, but it is said that, that he went to parties largely to eavesdrop on gossip, but that he would, will, he would will himself to walk away before the end of stories he overheard so that he could use these stories but determine their endings. I, I'm not really sure about that, but when I tell it to people who know about Henry James, they say, yes, that's true. I guess he wrote about that in his journals or letters. Um, but so there are, you know, we have to take what we, artists have to take what, what is in the world around them and repurpose it. And, and sometimes, and you know, there are also people who attempt to hurt people on purpose through art, right? Revenge or whatever. Um, when I published my first novel, someone said to me, oh, you know, the rule of thumb is that for every novel you publish, you will lose one friend who sees themselves in the novel and sees themselves portrayed unflatteringly, even if they're not even there. Well, that, I don't think that's happened to me, but um, so sometimes you, you write about things you don't even think are going to touch or hurt people or make them wonder how you see them. But, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's the way, it's the way of art. So, um, 
Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up Danny, though, because I, I will say that in the original draft of this book, Danny was a fourth point of view. But I had, uh, I was given some advice that maybe his character was very static, and I also, it's hard to keep readers engaged with characters who are angry and bitter. And Meredith Galarza, the museum curator, who I actually really loved writing about, but she is very angry. And she has, she's justifiably angry, but she's also in a very tough place in her life where she's lost her marriage and she thinks she may never have a child. And, and uh, you know, I gave her what I hoped was kind of a happy ending, uh, even though she doesn't get everything she wants. She gets some of it. Um, so, uh, you know, in some ways I think, I don't want to say this is my happiest book, but I think that it's the, even though there's death in it, that it is kind of my lightest, my light, my light heartedest, my most light hearted book. So, um, anyway, for those of you who have not read it, Jacob has copies. He also has three Junes. We, we wouldn't want him to have to carry too many of those books back to whatever vehicle he lugged them over in. So anyway, um, please uh, buy a book if you'd like, and uh, I, I would be happy to sign them if you'd like that. So thank you so much for coming out. That wraps up our Scott County Library Prior Lake event with Julia Glass. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Brian Freeman, at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. Brian Freeman is the internationally best-selling thriller novelist behind the Jonathan Stride and Cam Bolton detective series. Alter Ego, the long-anticipated ninth installment in the Stride series, hit shelves in May. It has been praised as one of Freeman's best yet. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.